Avengers! Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talkin' Smack. This is Alex here. Josh is again a bit under the weather, but he should be back for the next episode. With me this week is Justin from the Movie Wire podcast. How are you doing, Justin? Hey, good, Alex. Thanks for having me and hope Josh feels better, but thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. So before we get into our top, our um, topic, I just want to let everyone know that we do have a little bit of a different format this week. We don't often have breaking news a brand new superhero and that superhero of course we are talking about is the trump nfts josh gave us our christmas present early we each received two of those 99 dollars nfts and let's talk about the powers and responsibility that comes with owning these justin what are your thoughts because the red of his suit is fantastic i am ecstatic about this and these gifts are amazing but it's going to be even bigger gift if i win one of these special uh, drawings where I can have dinner with him or I can have a Zoom call with the man. It's absolutely exciting. I just can't believe it that we have a new superhero. The suit looks good. The different poses, classic Superman. And this is bullshit. I really can't believe Josh made us do this. Oh, this is such <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> I almost threw up in my mouth. Yeah. He, um, so that was an editorial note. Josh said if he's not going to be here that we have to do this gag on his behalf. Now, the worst part about that gag is he didn't actually give us any money for Christmas. We're doing this show free. <laughs> you should pay us 99 bucks for telling that joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So the actual topic is going to be a little bit of a James Cameron retrospective followed by our Avatar 2 review. But as we get into that, we're going to take a quick ad break to celebrate the watch and stuff podcast their podcast we just really dig and here's a little sample of them luke especially he goes from he goes from the the his whiny little thing thank you whiny i i want to go i want to go with tachi station he's in han's ship like the first time he's in han's ship he's like yelling at him for like what to do and he's like bro you have like never done anything step back (laughs) oh my god he's like pointing at buttons and shit like this isn't your ship like you don't know what the hell you're talking about luke is the uh, and maybe maybe you know what maybe at a certain level it works because who thinks they know more than everybody else than 16 to 25 year old white men And we're back. Uh, Justin, thank you for sticking with me. That was a painful, like, 45 seconds. Ugh. Not the ad. The thing at the front. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hurting so bad right now. <laughs> so one thing before we start to James Cameron, we both had the experience of seeing this in IMAX 3D. Um, your experience was a little more varied, but we'll get to that. But we saw the, uh, the Oppenheimer trailer. And when the Oppenheimer regular trailer dropped yesterday i posted of course across our social medias and i was watching it and i realized that trailer that everyone gets to see that's on youtube right now 
is vastly different than what we actually saw in theaters. There was some, uh, there was something about it looked like there was like a Senate trial going on. Um, they were talking about how if these calculations are incorrect at all, that the sky could continuously be scorched. The music was different. I am just shocked that they would cut two such vastly different trailer experiences eight months out from a movie premiering. Yeah, I think this is a good marketing move for this. And this one kind of took me by surprise on it because I'm actually excited for this movie. It's adding so much mystery to what we're going to see. And this one is going to be one of my most anticipated, especially after looking at the IMAX trailer. This one, I hope it's not going to be one of those moments where we just get some of the best themes and best moments that we see in a trailer. Um, but this one definitely has me excited for the after seeing the IMAX trailer. Yeah, um, Nolan, I'm not a huge fan of. I've always felt his movies were a little cold. There's just something about, I don't know if it's the camera placements. I don't know if it's how he decides to have his actors emote or lack thereof. Other than really the dark night i haven't felt really truly emotionally involved in a movie even people tell me and michelle is fantastic and i'm like it's okay i've always been a fan of cillian murphy and just looking at like the trailer we got on imax and then the trailer we got on youtube there's so many just stoic moments of him and his eyes as if the weight of the world is upon him which it was you know doing the whole manhattan project thing but it actually feels like Maybe it's some music, but I feel like we're actually getting an Oscar-worthy performance and that Nolan actually knows how to film that. Yeah, and you make a really good point on that because, Nolan, I'm on the same boat with you. Um, it's a hit or miss. His movies come across as almost stale. They come across with the same kind of tone. They come across with very uh, mild performances, um, if you take out The Dark Knight, because that huge fan of that film. But this one adds almost a noir feel to it. It adds, a di it almost like it's challenging Christopher Nolan a little bit. It's out of his norm for the style it's being uh, presented in. And this one, I'm hoping it breaks him out of that stale element into kind of a new discovery of what his capabilities are. Yeah, I, I really dig that. And um, so, I mean, it is, you know, we're just referencing a trailer that is for a movie eight months away, but that is, I think, kind of the power of a good trailer, but also... A filmmaker, a filmmaker who every few years tries to touch the zeitgeist and make something interesting. But yeah, if you get the chance to see the trailer in 3D, it's in front of Avatar. And I, it is different enough that I would go see it because Absolutely. I was so I was like, oh, cool. They dropped the trailer. Of course, it's Sunday. Everyone's seen it. And it was just so different. That I was like, I kind of almost want to go see the movie again just to get those little nuances that others weren't given. Yeah. And you also brought up the Manhattan Project on that, too, where you absolutely get that kind of feel to it. And that's going to really pique the interest. Um, but again, it comes out later next year and it's going to be a matter of it's almost setting itself up um, for a big crescendo of a nice little twist. I just hope it doesn't disappoint and hype up the audience to have that uh, cinematic disappointment. But I think we're going to be in for a little treat on that one. Uh, I hope so, too. All right. So. Kids, it's been 13 years since James Cameron has released a movie. Now it was 11 years before that when he released the previous movie. So we're going to take a little journey through who James Cameron is, and I hope to explain why I am such a fan of his, and I consider him such 
an amazing filmmaker. So James Cameron has released eight movies in 38 years. It's not a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially when we have someone like as prolific as Spielberg, who he's, what, on almost his 50th year? And he releases sometimes two movies in a year. Um, but now he's kind of settled down to one every two years. Then you have like Quentin Tarantino, who's been around for about 28, 29 years. He's he's prepping for his 10th movie. So eight and 38 is not a great record. But James Cameron started from Roger Corman. Uh, Roger Corman is a schlock movie studio franchise. They were known kind of like for low budget movies, mockbusters, almost almost kind of like what the Asylum is now. Those really bad sci-fi movies, uh, sci-fi channel movies you see all the time, like Sharknado. Uh, That's what basically Roger Corman did. A lot of people like Jack Nicholson grew up in Roger Corman's studio getting his first acting roles. It was kind of like a pathway, like the minor leagues for studios. You go there, you might shoot a movie or two, you might act in a few movies, and then you get called up to actually a studio production. And that is where Cameron kind of cut his teeth. He started off as a miniature maker. He became an art director, then a scenic uh, scenic painter. Special. He did special effects on mo- different movies. He became a production assistant and then wrote and sold a very cheap movie called The Terminator, which was in 1984. And what a movie to start out with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody knows what The Terminator is. Uh, I... I don't even know what to really say about this film because they're still trying to milk this franchise to this day and they haven't figured it out. (laughs) (laughs) What I think they're trying to go after is just milking that technology aspect of it. And again, James Cameron, he's not involved too much in the, except for maybe being a producer on some of these, but it's such a a basic concept um, that James Cameron came up with that he, I think he had, described it as he dreamed a invisible a ghost or a robot and he took this concept and he just kind of went with it and the most simplistic cool stylish concept he actually blew up to it and you're right they're absolutely trying to milk it and through video games movies and all that but um, it's that nostalgic feature that people just fell in love with it's a solid first movie you got you got arnold schwarzenegger who had just come off of um conan the barbarian he was finding his path in life. You got Lyndall Hamilton. You got Michael Bean. And Stan Winston did the effects. The thing I'll remember is watching a documentary on that on the Terminator is that that uh, exoskeleton that they did at the end of the movie, they actually built it out of steel. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was like a 200-pound thing that they're moving. And he, and he said, he's like, he's like, looking back, I would have just painted, made it plastic and painted it. <laughs> <laughs> but... That movie, which was a very low budget, I think it was around six, seven million and made almost a hundred, allowed him to basically start writing his ticket. And the movie he did next was a sequel to the greatest horror movie of all time. And he did Aliens. And there's a great, um, on Netflix, there's a sh- um, the movies that made us kind of documentary. And they actually talk, and they have aliens and they interview Scorn Weaver. They interview a bunch of production assistants. Gail Ann Hurd's on there. The rumor is, is that he basically walked up to them and said, hey, listen, I got a, he's like, I got a pitch for you. And he wrote alien on the board. And then he wrote an S and put like dollar signs through it. <laughs> Apparently that's true. I've heard the same thing. Yep. Yeah. He did pitch them what he wanted to do. But he also told, but he did that ballsy move. Now, what I love about the movies that made us about aliens is not only do they talk about it is 
perhaps the greatest sequel to a movie of all time. But you do see behind the scenes footage about how he's still obsessive he is about little details. Like there's like some of the miniature work because he grew up doing miniatures in art production is that he he's yelling at a te- not yelling but he's lecturing a tech that he's they're doing a shot where they're pulling a miniature along and it doesn't look right and he keeps telling him i've told you to wear gloves you're pulling this wire with your hands it's not going to go right he made him go get gloves and then pull pull the wire again and it flowed across the screen like he wanted it is such a dick move <laughs> <laughs> But it also shows, yeah, he gives a damn about what is being filmed. Yeah. That he just knows you're wrong because you don't wear gloves. <laughs> well, there's even rumors if you look at Aliens. Uh, there was almost a mutiny from what, if the rumors are true on set of uh, his demanding of detail, his uh, vision, if it's not executed properly. I mean, he was, again, rumors, but if they were true, um, of him firing multiple cast uh, members on the set just out of not creating his vision. He is he is known for having a clear vision um, and not having anybody deter him from that, which is part of, I think, part of his success. What, like, definitely watch the movies that made us about that because Sigourney Weaver talks about it, and apparently it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's wild. Uh, like, I really wish he'd been on there to hear his side of things, but him not being on set and they're basically they all talk about him with like reverence but they're all like yeah this should happen <laughs> <laughs> that show's great like if you look at the movies that made us some of the interesting tidbits they have on that especially if it's a movie that really appeals to you you'll take something away from it i really appreciate that show so he followed that movie up a few years later with the abyss now the abyss i don't think it's quite the love of the rest of his movies it was considered a financial disappointment after two huge hits but the abyss the story about um basically underwater miners that discover something odd get trapped under get trapped underwater in this rig discover something odd and the exploration of it and I you, I don't like to explain Abyss because if you haven't seen it, you really should see it. And I there's just so much nuance to the. It's a simple story, and if I tell you the reveal, even though it's a 30 year old movie, or you know, it kind of it doesn't really ruin it, but it does ruin the build up to the moments where this all happens. But damn, I love this movie. Yeah, the Abyss is one of those that almost, in my definition, was the first of its kind, where. It, you actually look up at the screen and this is probably one of the first James Cameron's movies I've seen where you actually look up upon the screen and actually have a sense of awe um, and a new environment. And that's Cameron's notorious for creating those worlds as we'll talk about in later. But this was one that I think was his true first example of imagination coming to the big screen. Yeah, I would agree with that because it's also kind of where like his demanding ego i mean not that he didn't have one in aliens mm-hmm. but they all filmed in this giant water tank that actually sank that they actually put underneath the water um there's something like 100 feet down this tank has been reused for multiple pro- for many other productions because they they built it so they might as well use it but they actually had to decompress before coming up at the end of the day they were filming these uh the sequences in like dive suits um 
there apparently was a lot of, a lot of tension because once you went down for the day of filming, even though you're only like a hundred feet underwater in this, I mean, yes, only a hundred feet underwater, <laughs> but as actors in the camera crew, you all go down there and you have these de- decompression limits and you had, they were had to like eat down there. It created this kind of hostile environment where Ed Harris and uh, Mary, uh, Mary Elizabeth Pastroni, they were talking about how, you felt pressure, not only because, okay, if I go down, then I have to decompress then I have to come back up. And then that wastes time. And then James is concerned about our time. And then we're in a union production and all this crap and the safety regulations. And it created this super like hostile environment where some of the, like the, the fighting that happens on in character is just them releasing their tension of the actual moment because yeah, we are actually underwater. Yeah, we're actually suffering this crap. Yeah, there's some weird crap going on. And this, you know, psychoed guy in his 30s is demanding that we can't leave the set. <laughs> and even if we leave the set, we can't really leave the set because we have to decompress and go up. And now we're not really away from him. <laughs> and then I, I want to get paid, so I have to come back down here. Well, you take you take a lot of these interactions. And you know what? You can take it as you know in a lot of tense moments in that film they probably save time on some reshoots because the tension was already there yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you take a negative and turn it into a positive but yeah. those are like ex- brilliant examples of just you know what those tense moments you see on the screen and it's almost a question if cameron's known for being a stickler when it comes to time wasting uh, last minute budget uh, modifications but it's almost like it's intentional with some of the environments he puts his cast through where he wants that tension and he wants that uh, demanding detail. So we can play it off. Like it's almost a, uh, an annoyance to uh, Cameron, but with his history, you can almost tell there, you got to admit there's a little bit of purpose to that. Oh, certainly. This movie is one I'm waiting for the 4k restoration of. Um, Absolutely. Because this movie was one of the last ones that had studio meddling because there is a director's cut which explains a lot more and has a different message the first one ends kind of on an enigma the director's cut does a little bit more explanations but also makes a little more sense in my opinion and i was looking it up because this is one of the this is one of his movies that hasn't been touched up and it turns out that it's sitting in his editing bay waiting for his final approval but he's just currently distracted by avatar two three four and five there's also some budget issues where this was the last production with his first um for one of his wives Mm -hmm. and they had like a studio together so there's kind of that that tension of how does it get proper release and blah 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 even though there is that issue the dvd still looks amazing the effects really hold up it does. That's the type of movie you want to get just right. And with his busy schedule of the next avatars, I mean, he's going to be busy till what, 2040. So, <laughs> I mean. yeah. so after the financial disappointment of the abyss, he went back to the well. And this is seven years after the first movie, 1991 Terminator two judgment day. Um, a lot of people, will say that the reveal of Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator it was spoiled in the trailers for the movie that nobody expected it. That is bullshit. The reason is those trailers came out about three to four weeks later. 
The original trailers were short, compact, basically pitched. Arnold Schwarzenegger was returning as a Terminator as the bad guy. The opening we- first few weekend audiences did not know about Robert Patrick and the T-1000. And this movie is probably the one that's cl- maybe closest to my heart because I remember being about six or seven. And for some reason, my mom decided to take me to this movie because she loved the first one. And so I vividly remember being in the theater at six years old, or was I seven, whatever. And I cried my eyes out Mm. when the Terminator was lowered into the lava. Yes, I know it's molten metal. It was lava. I was a child. (laughs) And he gave a thumbs up. I was inconsolable. That that was a tough moment for, I think, anybody growing up. Because I saw it as, I think I was, I don't know, I think I was around the same age, maybe 10. But you have that attachment to a kid. And if you're a kid, you have the attachment to relate to the kid. Mm-hmm. And you have that hero feature to it where you just have that bond. Yeah. And it's such a subtle goodbye that I think any kid is almost devastated by watching that scene. Because it's saying a goodbye to almost a superhero figure. Yeah, it it is like the father figure dying. It is the... is there, It's such a... Pro- a paternal figure because John Carter is a bit of a dick and you know, <laughs> he's not getting along with his step parents who are mean to him, even though they gave him a dirt bike and money for the, you know, money for the arcade <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's still in cash out of ATMs. But the way he expresses himself to the Terminator and the Terminator grows with him, it is, is a child empowerment fantasy because the adult, the superhero, as you said, is learning from him. And yet is still protective, still there to help him. And then, you know, of course, helps him get his mother back and defends him from the police, you know, and all the little things that happen therein. And it's such a nuanced movie, despite all the over-the-top action, the special effects that just wildly are amazing and hold up so well. But I do get choked up now as an adult getting to that end part because it's not necessarily out on nostalgia so much as it's you are i am saying in some ways goodbye to a childhood memory every time it comes along i love that movie it's a great one and again that one special effects wise ahead of its time and that we'll see a pattern with james cameron coming into the uh, next movies but you're absolutely right when it comes to john connor teaching the terminator and in the beginning, we get that spoiled, renegade, childlike uh, attitude. But at any point, we see the actions, but we don't say, that guy's a spoiled little brat, necessarily. It's written so well where it's almost hinted that we should have some sympathy for this kid because John Connor had to grow up way too fast being in the position that he was in. And they give that to the audience to really relate it to it, saying, we get it, he's going through pain. But now we get the Terminator in, and he has to step up even more to teach this machine how to be more human and how to relate. So it's it's almost a crescendo of the human emotion, which is an absolutely spot-on executed film. So Cameron's next movie is True Lies. What do you think of this movie? This one, out of his norm. Um, <laughs> it's a remake. Yeah. If you just showed this to anybody without knowing, with seeing all of James Cameron's films and just showed this, they wouldn't be able to pinpoint. There is not a lot in there to say, this is a visionary masterpiece. But 
what he does add that you can get hints from is the sense of the imagination, the wonder of the situation is. And that's what I found very interesting about this movie. The characters are likable. The situation that invites the audience to have that imagination of almost a secret agent. Everybody has had that thought of the imagination. I, when the, whether you were a kid, whether it's now where you're going through a midlife crisis, you wanted to be that guy. And that's where it peaks to almost a universal message of uh, relation of, I want to be that guy. I want to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, the secret agent that lives a secondary life. Yeah, this movie is so weird. It's his fifth movie. It's been 10 years since Terminator 1 came out, his third movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it's a remake of a French film. And apparently he was prepping other stuff when Schwarzenegger came over to him and said, hey, I want to do this film. And James Cameron said, okay, that's great. And he's like, I want you to do it. And he's like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Why? And Arnold Schwarzenegger said, I'm well into my career. I want to act. Hmm. And Cameron said, watch the film, wrote the script, and they shot it. And wow. that is wild. That That is the reason why this movie exists is because Arnold went, I would like to actually try acting. <laughs> that is crazy. It, so simplistic. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this movie in some ways doesn't really age well in terms of right. the um, the content. I can re I, wa I rewatch this movie quite frequently because Bill Paxton's role is just interesting. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis, the quick shift from Mousy to Bombshell is fantastic. Them coming together as competent, you know, at the end together where they're both doing this is great. And my my wife pointed something out to me when we a few years ago when we hadn't seen it in a while and now we rewatch it. This is the first and only movie where Tom Arnold, the comedian, is one acting and two endearing. <laughs> yes. Well, his relationship to the uh, other characters, he's so watchable, which to me, and this is my personal opinion, it's hard for me to watch Tom Arnold and take That's him painful. seriously. Oh, it, yeah. It is. But here, he is joined by a wide range of talent to help support him. And he is that goofball, but he, I think this is one of those films that he does a decent job in of just kind of toning him down. And I think that's honestly part of James Cameron being able to uh, direct his characters. This movie is ridiculous. The characters are over the top. It's a standard Arnold movie, only heightened a little bit, where every character seems to have that hero, superhero, Superman effect at the end, where there's not a lot of character development and they just become these action stars at the end, with the exception of Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're hanging from helicopters, and you're uh, in a hostage situation, kicking some butt. Um, it's just ridiculous fun, and it's, like I said, it's out of James Cameron's norm, but you know what? He had a way of spinning it to actually appease to the audience. Yeah, there's nothing I would say that is distinctly this is a James Cameron movie, other than how coherent the action is. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think is getting lost, especially over the last 20, 25 years or so. Thankfully, things like the John Wick franchise is bringing that back. I'm not going to crap on Marvel or anything like that. But editing fight sequences or action sequences to its pop, bang, boom, explosion, yep. and not actually knowing where every, anything is happening is an issue. 
but throughout his career, if there's action, I'm never lost. I'm always very aware of what, what the stakes are and where everything is. There's a bridge that is out that because some, you know, that is out about a mile down the distance because of some explosions. I am very aware of how close they are to that, to that gap at all times. There is the, um, the hell, uh, not the hell character. There's the air, you know, the floating airplane that is fighting helicopters um, in downtown LA or no wait, It's like, I think Miami. Yeah. I am very aware of where the helicopters is, where the buildings are, where the damaged buildings are. I know what the stakes are, where everything is. He knows action and he knows how to keep everyone invested. And I will say like the one thing that I could, that I would say is the most quote unquote sloppily edited part of the film is when um, Jamie Lee Curtis's character drops the machine gun and it tumbles down the stairs and hits people. <laughs> but I'm aware of where that gun is. I'm aware of why the bullets are firing. I'm aware of where the people are being shot that are being hit by that. Because it's such a comic moment. It's so bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> that every time it hits the um, the muzzles, cross firing at all the bad guys as it tumbles down the stairs. But in a modern movie, that would be like one or two hits. Everyone would be dead. They'd be on the floor and you wouldn't be really aware of what happened other than the characters go, oh, but he slows down time and he allows the reaction of her, the reaction of them. He shows where on the stairs it is as it's tumbling down, how many bad guys are still left, what bad guys are rushing into the room. Yeah, and that's a brilliant point because what I have issues with with current action movies, and it's almost polar opposite of what we saw kind of in the 90s, is there is an overuse of up close shots in action scenes. And it is my biggest pet peeve when watching an action movie. Now, where the confidence Cameron has in this is you spoke to it a little bit too, is going to be a brilliant use and having that confidence in a wide angle shot where a lot of filmmakers tend to steer away from the wide angle shots and actions because they're afraid somebody's going to point out a defect or there's something in the corner that shouldn't be there that's going to be missed during the editing process. Cameron has that level of confidence because he knows exactly what is on screen and he is very detailed in it. That's why he has that level of confidence in this action film than what we see even today. It's a weird movie that he decided to do for a friend. It's very watchable. <laughs> very watchable and memorable. Three years later, he followed it up with the, at the time, the most expensive movie of all time. It was over, cost over $200 million to make, which nowadays is basically they find that in the back couch pockets of <laughs> of Marvel or DC, or DC. There's hardly a movie out these days that costs under $200 million. But it was Titanic. He took a shot at making Leonardo DiCaprio, who was, yes, he was a teen idol. Kate Winslet, who was mostly known as a as a period piece British actress, Billy Zane, who I love Billy Zane. Every like three years or so, when he shows up in a mid level movie, I'm like, hey, you're acting. His old familiar friend of Bill Paxton is in this movie, and so I love this movie. It has a special place in my heart because it was one of the first movies that I saw on my own that was PG 13 because I was 13 the year it came out. Uh, my mom's only a few, well, my mom's, you know, is six, uh, 15 or 16 years older than me. So not only a few years older than me, but my mom is much younger than expected. And <laughs> she was a huge fan of it at the time because she was in her late 20s and loved Leo. And she watched peer movies. So she knew all about Kate Winslet and, of course, grew up on James Cameron films. So we saw this movie at least every two weeks 
for about eight months straight. Yes, movies actually exist in theaters for more than six weeks, people. <laughs> I know you have to go back 25 years to before there was color photography, but that happened. <laughs> and I love it. It won all the Oscar stuff. It It is a $200 million chick flick, but it is a competently done, well-researched, beautifully composed, filmed passion project, and I love it. I love how you called it a $200 million chick flick because that is the <laughs> pure definition. <laughs> Absolutely spot on. Now, I remember kind of in the same boat. This movie was in theater. It had to be for over a year, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it just never went away. It has that rewatchable value to it where it is entertaining. Um, and I remember I got grounded when my parents went to go see it. We were supposed to go as a family. And they all went and left me at home, but I lived next door to a theater. So I just snuck out the window and went to a different showing. So it didn't work out too well for them. But the first time seeing it, this is a movie, special effects wise, uh, the acting, it aged very well, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's one of those that you can, even though it is more of the romantic side, there are elements to it. And that's thanks to James Cameron's essential research before and while shooting this film is there's a lot of historical elements to it. At times, I wish they would have focused a little bit more on that versus a romantic feature of it. But it all blends together quite nice, and it's balanced very well. And this one, like you, it does have a special heart. Um, I think I probably saw this not as much as you, but probably about three to four times in the theater. And that was a long movie for the time. I own it on VHS. I own it on DVD. I own it on Blu-ray. There is a 4K release coming out apparently in February. I will be picking that up. I've watched all the behind-the-scenes documentary stuff about it. The Blu-ray has a interesting feature. You can turn this on. In most films, you would get the movie, and then you would get like the, you know, the director's cut or whatever of it. This allows you to choose a director's cut, but as the film is playing, you'll get a little pop-up that will say, "Hey, do you want to see a deleted scene?" And if you you have a like a limited window, and if you click yes. When that scene is supposed to be inserted, it then plays that scene and like normal, like they seamlessly slide it in. It's in, it's very interesting. That's cool. I love that. Now, there's a reason why a lot of these scenes were deleted, and I'll mention one of them during Avatar too when we could talk about that. But some of them are just little snippets, like the unsinkable Molly Brown. They show her like fill the boat shutter when the iceberg hits, and then like it goes back, it, like the iceberg flows past her port window. She looks back and sees nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them are like kind of long, nuanced conversations and other stuff that are very interesting. But I saw the I, uh, IMAX uh, 3D re-release that came out. I think for what the 25th anniversary back in like, yeah. 2012. And I watched it, and the only scene that doesn't hold up is actually one special effects shot of when they're the first time they're really sailing out to the open sea, and the camera pans to this above shot, and you see everyone walking on deck. It is so obvious those are PS2 um, NPCs because they like walk all stiff-legged and salute awkwardly, and like dresses don't move. <laughs> Other than that, that movie, damn movie, just holds up. And it's one of those you have to kind of almost revisit once a year, um, if not more. My wife is a huge fan of this movie, and it's on at least every Thanksgiving, I think, is her tradition. Oh, that's really cute. Yeah, it's one of those we just, if you see it playing, it's almost impossible not to just sit and watch it. It's one of those movies. 
So the, that was the biggest movie of all time. It made 1.7 billion when I don't think any movie had officially made over a billion, at least not just for inflation. And it took him 12 years to release his next movie, which of course was the most expensive movie of all time. They said it was going to be another bomb, which was Avatar. 2009, Sam Worthington, he brought back Sigourney Weaver, who he's worked with a few times. Uh, Zoe Saldana was, of course, Natiri. You have a bunch of his normal kind of characters that he sticks in there. When the trailer came out, I was excited until I noticed how perfect all the Avatar's teeth were. <laughs> They're like all perfectly white and capped. I'm like, that's kind of weird. But then once the movie was actually released, they actually had all slightly different teeth. I saw this movie opening weekend, 3D IMAX, drove an hour and a half north to get an official IMAX to see this, only to discover that apparently showing up 30 minutes early was not good enough because we had to wait in line. And we sat in the front row staring up for three hours. Kids are so spoiled nowadays. <laughs> Can you choose your seats? How dare you? <laughs> Tickets online, choose your own seats. Come on. You you mentioned the teeth. It's almost like the Sonic the Hedgehog original yeah. concept. And then they oh, had yeah. to go back and fix it. I love this movie. And this is where I think me and you are going to disagree on this one. Ooh. Uh, ooh, yeah. In all honesty, here's the deal. The first Avatar, I I enjoyed. I did like. Um, but it didn't have that Cameron feel to it. Mm. The visuals were there. The CGI was beautiful. The 3D was state-of-the-art. Everything camera-esque technical-wise is there, but I miss the emotional attachment to characters. I miss the I miss the likability. And the, the plot is a little recycled here and there from a couple different movies that I can just pinpoint. Um, but the movie was good, but I wasn't ecstatic about it. I wasn't part of that Avatar craze. I never had the feeling to just go back and just say, I need to watch this again. Come Walking out of the first theater, and again, I had a string of bad luck with Avatar movies, but... It it was almost, I felt like it was almost a chore going back to watch it again. I I loved it. And part of it is just how pretty the world is. Yeah. And how, of course, where everything's framed. Then there's like moments like um, Michelle Rodriguez, she joins the uh, Navi. She joins their side of it. And her, um, somehow they took the time to paint her helicopter with like streaks on it. <laughs> so she had war paint on it. I do admit the plot is weak. And it is the standard person discovers a new world, joins them. Mm-hmm. There's hundreds of movies where that's the plot. One could almost say Star Wars has that plot because in the first movie, Luke, uh, in the first movie, Luke is trying to join the Empire. He wants to become a fighter pilot like his friend. And it turns out that his friend is actually a rebel and he joins the rebellion. Not that I think Luke was actually going to join the Empire, <laughs> <laughs> but he wanted to go off to flight school. And that's only one option. <laughs> uh, but the plot is, it's there. And yeah. unobtainium. I mean, come on. <laughs> that is a something that he wrote in the first draft and no one questioned him. Yeah. No one went, dude, are we going to mention that he said this was a placeholder? <laughs> and no one brought it up. <laughs> There is a lot to this movie, and it, when it first came out, it confused me a little bit. It is hard, and part of the success, I think, from watching it, you have that repeat watch value from the technical achievements. Achievements. You have people that are walking into a theater that are seeing something new for the first time, and that's where I kind of give it credit. 
part of going and investing that time and money into a movie, you want to see something new. And Cameron, to his credit, he offered that to audiences and they yeah. want and they wanted more. You have the Cameron visual that just screams Cameron, but he wrote and directed it uh, both piece both pieces to, by himself. And I think that's where he got in a little over his head where that was a lot on his plate to kind of put into writing. He lacklustered on that. And then he focused more on the technical aspect to kind of yeah. make that shine. And hopefully uh, nobody notices kind of the plot holes or the uh, basic dialogue that we have. I will say that his dialogue is not the greatest as well. Um, there are some wonderful lines that he mm-hmm. has written. I mean, and the, some of them are just so bizarre. Like, <laughs> There's a line from True Lies that I'm not going to repeat on this podcast because I don't want to get flagged by the FCC. But it's I a think weird I know which one. Yeah, yeah it, Bill Paxton says it, and yep. And finally, I looked at my wife and I went like, "What the hell does that mean?" <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of had a discussion, and basically, he probably heard some weirdo say it and wrote it down. Oh yeah, uh, but <laughs> overheard it in a bar. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you know, credit to him. He made the biggest movie of all time. It ran Absolutely. for like five, six months in theaters. He released an extended edition that did a few hundred million more. He, then we had to wait thirteen years. Now, let's just do a quick fire hits of. If you there's a Wikipedia page that breaks it down by decade, every pro, uh, production that went into some form of production but never materialized that he was involved in. I picked out a few that I thought were interesting. There's Wolverine, uh, supposed to happen in the late '80s, early '90s, before um, Marvel Studios kind of collapsed and was bought out. James Cameron was going to produce. Catherine Bigelow of Zero Dark Thirty was going to be the director. This was going to be a big budget action movie in the early 90s with a female director which would have been incredible especially as we know Catherine bigelow has come to be bob hoskins was going to be wolverine angela bassett was going to be storm oh the cast of dreams that is a wild cast that would have worked oh bob hoskins that that is one i would have died to see him as wolverine there is yeah no- it could be the worst movie in the world, and I don't care. Just to see Bob Hoskins uh, sport the claws would would just make the movie for me. Yeah, he would have been about the right age, uh, late 30s, early 40s. He looks like the Wolverine in the comics. I mean, yeah, he would have probably had to work out. Oh, but, yeah. yeah, you know, short, a little pudgy, you know, hairy guy. <laughs> I mean, a harder version of his um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit character. <laughs> <laughs> We were literally hours away from having James Cameron's Jurassic Park. Mm, yes. um, the story was confirmed. Uh, James Cameron did a, uh, a series a few years ago called um, James Cameron's like the world of science fiction, where they talked about science fi- sci-fi movies. And he and Spielberg talked about the Jurassic Park deal. J- uh, James Cameron read the book, immediately started taking notes, had his agent calling Michael Crichton. And he found out Michael Crichton had just sold the rights to Spielberg like an hour beforehand. Crazy. Yeah. And apparently Cameron was pissed. He actually, he said he finished the draft of the film he wanted to do, which was going to be hard R, very close to the book. A lot of focus on the science. Have you read the Jurassic Park book? Oh, numerous times. Love them. Oh, that is not the movie they gave us. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. It is scary. I had nightmares about the the velociraptors in the book. You, they literally were firing rocket launchers at them, <laughs> blow off a leg, and they keep coming. Yep. Well, and I think that I, 
to me, I would have, the curiosity piques my interest on what James Cameron would have brought to the table. And I don't know if it would have been as successful, but again, I wouldn't bank against James Cameron. Um, but the rewatch value, um, I don't know, would have been there at a hard R. With Spielberg, he adds that curiosity element to it. And I'm sure with a budget and all that, you couldn't put everything in the book that was cool, like the river rafting scene. Yeah. Um, that would have been cool. But that one would, that one's definitely would be an interesting take on it. it just really piques your imagination on what he would have done with it. Yeah. The, basically, what he said was the last half hour would have been the bunker from the basically filmed page for page the bunker from the book and he said it would basically would have been aliens with dinosaurs that's so cool yeah but cameron did tell spielberg during that interview i i he was carrying a grudge he saw it opening weekend and he and then he said wow i was the wrong director (laughs) he admit that he's like yep i was wrong for this role (laughs) he was going to do spider-man with leonardo dicaprio before titanic there is a scriptment, um, which mm-hmm. that's what he calls. Uh, there's treatments, which are basically scripts or 10 to 20 pages, a little bit of dialogue that basically tell the outline of the movie. Then there's, of course, the script, which is the full script. He likes to write what he calls scriptments, which are between 60 to 100 pages of dialogue and outline. And so his scriptment for Spider-Man leaked a few years back. He confirmed it was his. Have you read it? Yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> You can talk about that. Yes, I have. (laughs) Go ahead. Okay. Okay. This, I have a feeling, wouldn't have been another, again, another identifiable James Cameron movie. And again, that's just, when you read the words, the script, you're only left with your imagination and the descriptions of each scene. But to me, I was left a little underwhelmed. It seemed a little radio serial, kind of a 90s vibe superhero movie. I don't know. I think he. this is one of those movies that he would have banked more on the technical aspects of it versus uh, the character or dialogue. What do you think? I wish that I, I could visit for five minutes the universe where this movie was filmed <laughs> because I want to see Leonardo DiCaprio doing the spider mating dance BDSM <laughs> scene with whoever they cast as Mary Jane. <laughs> yes. Because... That is wild. And that is so over the top. Like I, I read it. I'm like, okay, well, there's some cursing. Okay. Peter Parker curse. Okay. Wow. He talks about like punching a guy's head off. Okay. (laughs) And then I get to him seducing Mary Jane by like shooting webbing to stick her in place and like a sexy, like undulating dance. And I'm just picturing DiCaprio in this scene. And then I realized I w- what I was inverting in my mind was the true lies dance sequence with Sigourney Weaver. I mean, uh, Jimmy Lee Curtis. And I realized he kind of just flipped that. So Mary Jane would have been in the seat bound up <laughs> Arnold and Leo would have been doing the Jamie Lee Curtis dance. And I was like, there's something wrong here. I'm going to keep going. I love how you're visualizing that, but I just have Toby <laughs> Maguire in my head, just doing the dance <laughs> in Spider-Man three. <laughs> um, oh my God. Yeah. It, it definitely would have been a different movie. And I just don't know. Cause Around that time frame with X-Men, Spider-Man, you can tell that he was definitely interested in doing a project with superheroes. And I don't know if it was because it was starting to start peaking in studios or not. But in my personal opinion, I think it was a smart move for him to steer away from that a little bit. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten some of the good projects, I think. And I think it would have almost uh, set him back a little bit because 
those are big brands to accomplish and a big fan base to accomplish. And I just don't know if he's a fanboy or not to really execute. Yeah, that which brings up the next one that I found interesting is that he almost filmed a Dungeons and Dragons movie, mm. but they couldn't agree on the the merchandising percentages. Oh man. And that like I mean he is the right age range. He's 68 and um uh, Dungeons and Dragons is about to celebrate its 50th year. So he's the right age to be, you know, late teens to get involved in something like this, so, you know, especially the first um, iteration of it. And before, the, even before then, there were war game RPGs. It's just Dungeons and Dragons solidified like what would be a rule set. And so I could see him having interest in it. I could see him wanting to film one of the, like the pulpy 80s books versions. But at the same time, I just don't see him doing it. It it almost seemed like he was chasing like a payday. And I would agree um, because the first thing when you think of a Dungeons and Dragons movie is not just the characters, but you're looking at the how it's going to look, how the environment's going to be. And you can almost guarantee Cameron was looking at that vision, not what's going to lead up to it. Not It's going to be a, I'm going to design it and the uh, set design is going to support the characters where it should be the character supporting the set design. Yeah. I think that one too. Um, I think it would have visually looked amazing. Um, I can, I'm playing the movie in my head as I'm thinking of James Cameron of what that would look like, but the challenge would be kind of things we've seen him struggle with in the past, um, which is a hit or miss, which would be some more detailed characters and just a drive in those characters. Um, but I think that one would have been a definitely an interesting one that I would have loved to see again. So one that I know he was never going to direct, but I still want, but this is on my bucket list of things that I hope gets filmed. It is him producing Guillermo del Toro's at the mountains of madness. Mm. This film was literally about a day away from going into full production. You had Ron Perlman. Tom Cruise was the star of it. This would have been Dottoro's first project after leaving The Hobbit because of its issues. And from everything that's come out is they called Del Toro, because this is going to be a $150 million movie, and said, can you guarantee this is PG-13? And he said, I didn't put any swear words in there. It's only just scary. But I just produced a different movie that got rated R for scariness. And they went, okay, and hung up and canceled the production. That one, I heard rumors of this movie, and this is the one I would just hope would get past the pre-production mark. Just get this thing made because the cast is on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just that, and I'm just, I, me personally, I still have hope for this yeah. <laughs> project that this one would get made. Did you see um, uh, about a week ago, Del Toro leaked some test footage from they were working on? No. Uh, I mean, he didn't leak it, but he put it on his Instagram. It's a test footage of um, an elder thing approaching someone in a cavern. And so you see some creature design. You see some kind of like, you know, set design work. And it is, I really hope this movie still comes out. There's rumors he's trying to pitch it to Netflix and where he has built kind of a home over the last little while with a bunch of CGI movies and shows. And of course, his Cabinet of Curiosities that came out in um, that came out in October and his uh, Pinocchio movie that just came out of what, a week or two ago for Netflix. Yep. And I'm just going to take one last one before we start Avatar 2, which is Alita Battle Angel. Mm. Apparently loves the anime. 
loves the book, the comic book. Uh, well, sorry, manga. I had heard, been hearing about this movie since basically after Titanic. So it was supposed to be his next movie. And then that didn't happen. And then you hear about Avatar, but then you heard about this. And then he was supposed to film this before Avatar 2 started filming. And then nothing came of it. And he finally passed it off to Robert Rodriguez. And I really like this movie. Because I can see that basically Robert Rodriguez pulled a Spielberg when Spielberg filmed uh, AI for Coop, uh, after Kubrick passed away. Mm, yeah. I can see where Cameron's visuals, his style, his camera placement, his kind of sucky dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I really like it, and I'm really sad it didn't get uh, a sequel because apparently they have the scripts for two and three ready to go. Yeah, and I think they were banking a lot on this movie, given the talent involved, to really take off. Um, and I, this movie, I think, was mainly due to the poor marketing when it comes to how they were pushing it out on the trailers. What I loved about this movie is the environment and the grittiness of it. It has that imagination, too. I've never read the comic, so I, would, I went into it with a fresh pair of eyes. I had nothing to compare it to, um, but it did put me into that world of imagination. But the only thing I just held me back from really, really loving this movie is, again, we, I talked about it earlier. When you have a gritty environment like that, the use of wide angle shots to really get a taste of what our characters are interacting with, um, I think that was lacking a little bit. But I did like the characters. I liked the feel of it. I think it was a visionary uh, eye candy that doesn't put a lot of bright colors out there, but puts a more inviting futuristic grittiness to it that really is something unique to watch on screen. And I will would challenge anyone who thinks that like this is a purely Robert Rodriguez led endeavor yep. that this he's I would challenge them because what I think proves the point that he was nothing but a hired gun to basically Cameron said, here's all the previsuals. Here's all the my um, here's all my storyboards. Here's the script. Just film it for me, please. Yep. Look at the book of Boba Fett. The, the episodes where Robert Rodriguez had, um, filmed and then look at Alita Battle Angel and you cannot tell me that that is the same director. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you bring up a good point because if you take away, don't look at IMDb, don't look at the credits, just watch the film for what it is. You would never know. You would never guess. It's, it's definitely almost out of his comfort zone, but you can see little hints of his style, but yeah, you're absolutely a hundred percent right on that one. I mean, I'm a Robert Rodriguez fan. Um, uh, Spy Kids 1 and 2 have a special place in my heart. Oh, love I it. will sing the floop song to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cruel, cruel world full of nasty boys and girls. <laughs> oh, you're you're doing it. Keep going. <laughs> no. <laughs> With my braces, I have a bad lisp, so I, I don't want to make it even worse. <laughs> I'm trying to sing. Um, but anyways. <laughs> uh, now the moment you've all been waiting for. Avatar 2. It's been 13 years. He filmed 2 and 3 and 4 back to back to back. Apparently 3 is about 95% done. 4 is halfway done. He just needs to go ahead to film number 5. And I saw it opening weekend. IMAX. Through 30 minutes of trailers. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, okay. I am going to say that I did like this movie. I thought it was beautiful. I thought the action was amazing. But one thing that pissed me off throughout the entire movie before it slightly redeemed towards the end was what the fuck did they do to Natiri? She is almost non-existent in the movie. 
which I don't know if that's because Zoe Saldana was busy filming the Marvel movies and dealing with all that crap because, you know, she would have been filming Guardians of the Galaxy at the same time. And so they would have had to work around her budget. I mean, not her budget, her, time, her schedule. But Niteri disappears for such large swaths of this movie that it bothered the hell out of me because of how strong a character she was in the first one and how the beginning recap made her seem to be. And that is where the movie for me is very weak. You bring up that. And I think to me, I'm, I'll just say, I absolutely love this movie. Ooh, (laughs) I did not expect that. (laughs) And I went into it because we talked before the show on my bad, horrible, cursed experiences with the Avatar movies. I have spent almost nine hours with this movie. (laughs) And if I had to spend nine hours with the movie, you know, there's a sense of bitterness to that. Um, And, but here's after each viewing, there is problems with this movie. Don't get me wrong. And I think your, your point's good. And I think there's some, one, the talking whales I hated, by the way. That, <laughs> that was so awkward. Like, and it wasn't consistent. One time they talked, another time they just sit there and be quiet. Like, they pick and choose when the subtitles would come on. Uh, like, I hated it. Um, <laughs> I hated those damn whales. But the thing that drove me a little bit of crazy, this time Cameron brought on a, uh, some support on his writing. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a married couple. And I think this was a brilliant move because you can tell there's a lot more love put into the dialogue. It's not perfect. And there's a little bit more plot that takes its time. But um, what drove me a little bit nuts is the inconsistencies of the dialogue. There's a scene, which I won't give too much away, but there's a scuffle between the kids. And uh, one of the kids drops the B word. That's just totally out of context. Oh, yeah, that's so weird. It just seems bizarre and you know you're learning it from jake because he's the only one that would know that word yeah but it doesn't match his character the style and we see little tidbits through that through the movie that just kind of holds it back on the inconsistencies but the movie is absolutely stunning and i don't know if you're going to talk about it but i'm going to bring it up go for it um is what my curiosity was we had the 3d kind of gimmicky thing to promote the first one Mm -hmm. i was curious on what cameron was going to do um, in this one. And again, my policy is I don't look at reviews. I try and steer away from anything online before I see the movie. There is something noticeable within the first half and I couldn't place my finger on it, but the frame rate, a normal movie is shot in 24 frames per second. This one mm-hmm. goes to 48 and no movie has really done this with success. This movie makes it work and it looks it takes a little bit for the mind to get used to it, but once mm-hmm. it does, it really engulfs you into this movie. What I love is how, I mean, yes, it's gorgeous. And I expect that from James Cameron. His movies stand the test of times, other than there's little shots here and there in every one of his movies where you're like, that didn't work, especially all these years later. But Avatar still looks fantastic. True Lies, Titanic, Terminator 2, The Abyss, those effects. I mean, for, 19, uh, for the best is 1989, and those effects, there's nary a one that you can go like, ooh, this movie is gorgeous. The use of color, the use of like the neon shading, the glow in the darkness. There are so many photorealistic moments in this that I truly believe that they actually filmed with Navi. Yeah. Especially like the first movie, there was enough differentiating between, hey, we're with the avatars, we're with humans, we're with the avatars, we're with humans, that... At the end of that movie, when Niteri goes to save Jake, 
the first time we're watching that movie, I was like, the, I, I mentally, my head clicked and I went, if this doesn't look right, this movie's shit. Because yeah. she scoops, she the, uh, she the Navi, like nine and a half feet tall, ten feet tall, however big they are, scoops him up and places the mask on his face to save his life. That still looks real. Mm-hmm. And that move that could have been broken. I mean, you look at any movie from 2008 to 2012 where they have CGI interacting with people. They don't actually pick them up, hold them, touch them normally without some like manipulation or obvious go to for um, animatronics or something like that. But there's so many scenes of this movie, like them wrapping their um, binding their wrists to the um, the new their new mounds, um, walking through the village, bound the the their youngest child bouncing along um, the little tarpy stuff, moving through the trees. There's a lot more interaction with, and especially since a big plot point is they have an adoptive child named Spider, who's a human, who's constantly playing with the other kids. It looks like he's there with nine feet tall people constantly. It looks so gorgeous that I was so sold on. The swimming was beautiful. The interaction. I bought the storyline, especially the, um, what's her name? Carrie? Mm, the yeah. uh, Sigourney Weaver's avatar. Carrie, turns, yeah. yeah, Carrie. Turns out that she was pregnant and had her baby and had a baby. They're, they're not sure who the father of this avatar is, but someone was, and they have her. And Sigourney Weaver, I believe is in her early 70s now, is playing like a 13-year-old, and it works. Works, yep. Absolutely. There's so much about this movie that just works. This one, uh, to me, what my apprehension on this was, I just hope they don't put the visuals over the uh, subtext. The uh, It needs some substance to it. And after 13 years, I hope that they took a lot of the uh, feedback from criticism to things that people liked, and they actually used it. And mm-hmm. in this movie, they did, um, where... Everything is almost balanced. The visuals support the dialogue. It's a it's a carnival for the senses, for the eyes and the ears. And I think they do a fantastic job on this. Um, the only thing that I wish they would have focused a little bit more on is they talk about the sky people coming in, which are humans, and creating this new uh, base, this new world. I wanted to see more of that because we had this absence from the humans, from Pandora, and they're talking about all this new technology. I don't want to be spoon-fed that by just words. I kind of want to see it. I want to see them create this new world. We've seen Pandora before, but let's see what happens with this world. And that creates almost a foundation for, we don't just have one villain in this movie. We have multiple villains um, that are trying to do the same thing as we kind of saw from the first one. I wanted to see that foundation being built to set us up for the next ones. This movie is about 310, something like that, 3 hours minutes. I didn't really ever feel the length of it, but I did feel some absences. One is mm-hmm. that there are humans that stay behind and we kind of see them briefly and then they disappear. We see them briefly in the beginning. They talk about them, especially how this human child grows up with uh, Jake and Terry's kids. But then they disappear until like a very needed portion of the late second, early third act where they briefly appear, uh, which is a beautiful moment. They actually talk about something surprising they believe one of jake's children has um epilepsy i was like wow they're actually bringing in some disease or actually bring not, not necessarily disease but they're they're bringing in environmental um, factors of what can be happening to people um real um health issues people have i thought that was interesting but they kind of like dis- but they 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 stayed behind and they aren't with the quote-unquote other sky people so i'm like okay where do they go to 
Yeah. Is there no like trying to round them up and capture them? Because like 50 or so of them stayed behind, it looked like from the, that one panning shot we got. Like, mm-hmm. where'd they go? There's little moments, like, I'm not quite sure where people went. They spend so much time developing Jake's children, Jake and Atiri's children, and this new world of the sea people, which, oh my God, that, that was beautiful. That The differences they show and the biological differences in the arms and the skin tones and the tails. Yeah, well, I like that they contrasted that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. It's almost like looking at a diagram of the elements. I think the design of them were beautiful. I think um, it matches their environment uh, quite well. And it's enough to not completely separate them, but at the same time, but interact and balance very nicely. Yeah. And there's, you talked about spy, uh, Spider earlier, about mm-hmm. playing with uh, the Navi. And I think when you take this new tribe, you take Spider, I love how it has this inclusion of different uh tribes different species if you will Mm -hmm. um and they just interact together and it's almost like a sub messaging in the times that we have today Mm -hmm. um and i thought it was a beautiful message that are kind of just underlined um while we're going through this transition of ecological side messaging as well but i love that human element that nice little bow they put on it um to show that Yeah, I love that they actually just showed that, and it shows that great human element, even though it faces challenges. So I think it was very well done. So one of the things, and this is a little point that it stuck briefly in my crawl for a moment before I realized that I was thinking of this wrong was. So um, because Jake's and Grace's avatars are have some human DNA with them, instead of having four fingers, um, they have five like humans. Mm -hmm. And the other tribe uh, that they go that they begin to intermingle with cause, you know, like, Oh, you look at their hands. They have demon blood and the sea people tribe, they call them four fingers a lot. And I was like, kept thinking like, like what kind of a weird insult is that? Like, that doesn't make <laughs> sense. You have four fingers. And yeah. then I fi- it finally clicked in my head that they, well, the thumb technically isn't a finger. They have three fingers. So they're mocking the, Na- the, the hybrid Navi that have a thumb and four fingers. Oh. And I was because and it finally hit me because like one of them I like, held up their hand and it, you know and because <laughs> they're the sea people they like their arms are thicker they have like slightly like flipper not flippers but like finish yep kind of like um, extra mus- musculature their tails are are more uh, dorsal no, not dorsal fin or more tail fin like mm-hmm. and one of, and they have it looks like they have webbing between the main three fingers and I was like oh and that's such a little detail that someone put in there that I thought they were wrong, but no, I was wrong. They were right. (laughs) It's such a little thing. And I love that. Well, I love how they use those little details of you talk about the design of uh, the fins and the fingers and all that, but they don't just put it in there just to change the look of the character. They actually utilize that Mm because it's almost like the fight scene that I spoke to earlier. They utilize a little bit of those skills uh, about physical features in that fight. They don't just mention it. They actually utilize it. There's a purpose to, or a rhyme and reason to have this design, and they just don't tell it to show it. They actually just show you. Before we get into the brief spoiler section, uh, we have a rating system here on Talking Smack because the there is no nuance on the internet. A movie is either must, so amazing it is a must-see or complete garbage and is a must-skip. Justin, what do you think of Avatar 2? Must-see or skip? 
I would say this is if there was any movie to see to give you the awe and show you something new and give you a three hours time investment and get your money's worth. It's not without its issues, um, but I would say this would be a must see. It'll bring that uh, that loving feeling back to the theater that you get while watching it on a big screen. I agree with you. This is a must see for me. There are two movies this year that have made me realize how much I love a well done movie that has nuance and development and it was well worth the wait. And one of them is Top Gear Maverick. The other one is Avatar The Shape of Water. Those are movies that I will definitely be watching on repeat. I'll probably go back to see Avatar probably over New Year's, I think. Um, Because I really want to see a few things that I'm actually going to mention to you here when we in the spoiler section in Mm. three, two, and one. Okay, quick question I have for you. Yeah, have you ever seen Titanic's deleted scenes? Uh, I've seen the deleted ending, but that's about it. There is a large portion of the movie that they cut out um, that explains why Cal looks a little bit beat up towards the end of the movie when he's on deck before he gets in a lifeboat, he and Jack get into a fist fight in the a fist fight that turns into a gun fight while the ship is sinking. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Yeah. It is three, four minutes long. Like, um, so that scene where, uh, the ship, the, the ship is sinking, they're starting to run through the dining room and like, he's firing his gun at them. That actually is, that actually is a re-edit of the original scene, which is that Jack and him are fighting while they're running through the dining room. They're, he's chasing them, and they're like in a full-on fist fight. And then like, there's gunfire and other stuff happening. Oh, I would have loved that in the movie. It does not work. Oh, it doesn't? Oh. <laughs> yeah. See if you can find it. I, at the end, when um, the bad guy, whatever his name is, Quadrich or whatever his name is, yeah. he and Jake get into that fight and the ship's sinking. I'm like, oh, he finally filmed it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess that's a little over the top when you kind of think about it, but I have to look at it. I, I want to watch that. That actually sounds interesting. Basically, the spoiler is, I mean, the end of the movie is basically a recreation of Titanic and aliens because the entire <laughs> last battle is on a ship that starts to sink while there's multiple enemies and creatures in the water, in the air. And it was so over the top. I was so happy. God, I think you just pitched a movie right there for Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, it, it kept going. Like, there was the initial fight where, you know, because uh, the bad guys have Jake's kids for the second time, which I find really funny that his youngest daughter is like, I've been captured again. <laughs> <laughs> and there's re- a whale gets revenge. <laughs> oh, man, those damn whales. God. <laughs> so the whales can, so the sea people can talk to the whales, right? The first time the subtitles came up, I thought that it was an inner dialogue of the kid. Yeah. I was like, this is weird. Is this kid, like, psychotic? And then I realized, no. They, the, the reason why they have the underwater sign language is for the whales. But then I'm wondering, how do the how did the whales teach them sign language? Or they teach the whales sign language? I was super confused on what dialogue, who was using what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the subtitles, like, the whale's just staring at him for a good five minutes, not saying anything while he's doing sign language. And then all of a sudden, a subtitle pops up. Like, I don't understand. I think this was like super sloppy when it comes to those whales. I was getting so angry at these whales. I wanted them to go away. Yeah. I really don't have any complaints in the movie other than Terry. Like, that is my main thing is that 
so part of the reason we went and saw the movie is my wife and I are big D&D role players um, and she, we uh, do reenactments and stuff like that. She is an anthropology major and when she saw Natiri in one of the trailers pregnant and firing a bow, she was like, oh, she's like, that's interesting. Like, because you typically don't see something like that. Yeah. Uh, you don't show a woman entering battle while pregnant. And then at the end of the movie, um, the matron of the sea tribe is very pregnant and goes into battle and you know stuff like that and that was interesting she really likes world building uh that is one of her favorite parts of movies and books is just the world building the anthropology of this is an interesting world what kind of nuance i can have and so that's one of the reasons we saw it but nateri was so short-shifted during this movie Mm -hmm. that until the ending when she went pure beast mode i felt like i wasn't watching the same character and yeah, I think I got that. I got that feeling too. And I think the intent, uh, the way I interpreted it, is she was such a big piece of the first movie, and we saw more of Jake's character as the human almost element to it. That the film wanted to kind of steer away to give him, give almost Jake's perception of how he's living amongst the Navi. But I think it wasn't well balanced um, when it comes to sharing the screen with the characters. I think there was a little too much on Jake. Yes. Um, with no substance. So it would just be him parenting. And I don't think there was a lot more to that that I think they could have stretched it. I, I would have liked to seen them swap out maybe a fourth of his lines and interactions with her because, like, we see him learning to bond with his sea creature. And she apparently was like, screw that, because she kept her flight, her mount, <laughs> which is fantastic, you know. And um, then Quidditch, like, he is really wants Jake, but he also super wants her, but he never really seemed to go at her. He was always like, Jake, let me finish killing you off kind of thing. And she was, and then she had that scene where I will kill that devil again. You know, she had that part in the beginning when to rescue the children where she's like, I, how many times do I have to put you down kind of thing? So I'm hoping in the third and fourth movie, we get more of her because I don't think she's necessarily the most interesting character, but because of how strong of a female character she is and how they show her continuously as competent and not necessarily reliant on Jake rescuing her, which is, you know, a stereotypical role that we're fine, that thankfully we're getting past yeah. is that she is that I want more of her standalone, uh, standalone thoughts and interpretations than just, I had kids and I'm a badass mom. You bring up a good point on that. When we talk about the female's role, right? And I think this is where the movie kind of steps away from that, which is a little unfortunate because you see Jake doing a lot of the parenting to build these uh, uh, kids up. And whenever he's trying to parent, the she kind of steps away a little bit and then just has a conversation after the fact. There's no involvement, which I think this film would have succeeded a lot more to give that almost like a co-parenting vibe where they're on the same team going for the same messaging. Because when we talk about the subject of tribe and family, I don't think it does a stellar job at showing the example of family when it comes to other than just being there for each other. I think we need to see them as a family in a parenting environment as well. So if we do get all four of these movies from what he says, is this is supposed to be like a generational thing where mm-hmm. like two and three are going to like be on Jake Nish, Harry and their kids. And then I'm assuming they probably jump ahead or something. Who knows what his ultimate plan is, but I really want to see that in the third film. I really want to see them as equals. That is really my 
biggest issue with that film. The other thing I find interesting is I really, really want to know what's up with Kiri. Like, mm. I don't give a crap who her dad is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, when did she decide to, like, use her avatar to hook up? <laughs> <laughs> I really don't give a crap about that. But I find, like, I that she did such a wonderful performance as this interesting child. Like they used her facial expressions so yep. well. They might've done a little modulation of her voice a little bit. So she doesn't sound as old, but I, her interactions by herself with the others, her like sorrow over what she is like, Oh, uh, the scene where they show them go into the, um, into the lab and she crawls up on top of the avatar's um, water shell thing where oh, yeah. uh, her avatar is still in suspended kind of animation. And she goes, hi, mom. Oh my God, that broke mm, my heart. Yeah. God. I think this is, well, I'm looking on what the end game is here because I'm dying to know who the father is. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's just the drama in me. I want to know. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I had my little cue card writing names down as suspects. There's not a lot to pick from here. No. So, <laughs> like, I mean, there's Jake. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. I don't know. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think it's going to be the other scientists that they kind of hint at, because that's not going to give us the twist factor, because okay. it's too obvious. In the last 13 years, he didn't once go, yeah, it was me, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I had that wildflower over there. Thing got a little crazy. Uh-huh. <laughs> we were bored. <laughs> want to make sure everything worked <laughs> but yeah i'm curious on where he's gonna go with this because um i think it's gonna be somebody that um obviously that is not going to be expected and i honestly maybe we don't even see this character or they don't even talk about this character in this movie we might not even get an idea or a representation of it till the next movie it's it's a slow burn we don't know but there's definitely a lot of good build-up that is enough to make somebody excited for the next one without them throwing all these hints to be in your face. Yeah. And I think as a sequel, it stands alone enough. Like, yeah, I'm not getting that. Like, um, Lord of the Rings, two towers, like, you know, like empire strikes back kind of thing of like, well, they obviously said for a sequel and the story is incomplete. Now I think the story is complete. Yeah. There is enough of a story here that it ends in a satisfying manner. The bad guys defeated the bad avatars are all defeated, save for one. And they're a part of a new tribe. I am content that is a satisfying story. I mean, obviously, I want to see where it goes, but I have enough here. The only thing that I would say that kind of just piques my interest a little bit more to kind of have that lingering is a relationship between uh, Spider and, uh, oh, I'm brain farting. Kiri. Kiri, thank you. I think that final kind of crescendo on. I just hope they don't make the mistake of continuing him as a villain. Um, I think we're overdone with him. I think th- I wish they would go with a different direction um, in the next one. Do you say, do you say Spider being a villain? No, uh, with uh, oh Quidditch. Yeah, yeah. Quidditch. Yeah. Um, so okay, I, I have a quick question about Spider. Yeah. Do you think Terry was gonna was gonna shank him? Yes. Oh, see, I I'm torn because <laughs> when she cuts him, I was like. I'm really torn if she would have actually stabbed him or not. I think it was a threat. I don't think she was going to really do it. Like with the emotional tension. And the only reason I thought that way is because they hinted, they gave some hints in the beginning of him knowing the village, him knowing their ways. Mm -hmm. And with him 
uh, with them, not being constrained or and just kind of walking among them, I think it would have been a symbolic betrayal. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what was triggering my mind is that it was going to be a twist to go that route. Yeah. I just don't know. Cause like I can see it both ways. I can see Nateri would have definitely shanked spider been like, fine, you know, kind of thing. But at the same time, I could also see her just stopping at the last second, but she is more ruthless than Jake is. Um, yeah. yeah. And she is livid in those moments. I don't know. But at the end, like I'm, what I'm really hoping for the third movie is that there's not some kind of weird, like spiders, like, you know, I don't trust you. Cause you almost stabbed me to death. <laughs> and it seemed like the end basically the spider was just like yeah i know, I know. yeah yep i know I, I know what was going down there i think he is going to be a big character in the next one um, because there's so many directions that this could go and he is a pivotal uh center of that um because they don't know that he was rescued um necessarily um mm-hmm. and he's almost like a double agent at this point there's a lot of development for him and i think he's going to be a huge piece of the next one all right so that basically brings us to a close here uh, Josh, I'm sorry you have to edit this not having seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Josh. Yeah, uh, he might make me edit this one, which would be fine. <laughs> but yes, uh, uh, so we'll end with indecision whether or not uh, Nateri is going to shank that poor little kid, who, by the way, is only supposed to be like 13 or 14, but I believe the actor's like 25, and that's a little odd. That's weird. That is <laughs> With so weird. A six pack, mind you. <laughs> I was like, oh, special effects. They show him. He's like two or three running around in like a, a diaper, and then they <laughs> jump ahead. Uh, anyway, so you can follow us at Josh underscore. Josh underscore Scar at Talking Smack Pod. You can join our Discord at Talking Smack Pod at gmail.com. Thank you to Leo Allen for our musical themes and Beppo and uh, Retro L Studio for avatars. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And please follow our guest, the lovely Justin from. Oh, crap. I just forgot what your podcast name is. I'm so sorry. Uh, the Movie Wire. The Movie Wire. Thank you. Where can we <laughs> find that and your socials? Uh, you can uh, follow it on anywhere you listen to podcasts and you can follow me on uh, Twitter, Instagram and letterbox at movie wire show. Thank as always. Thank you for listening. And because this is my stupid, bad ongoing running joke, the theme music this week has been remixed by Simon Frangle fresh off of avatar two. <laughs> I don't know. I did it as a joke originally because we did not have any music whatsoever or any sound effects for the first I don't know like 10 episodes oh, okay. so I'll just say oh yeah listen to the listen to our theme music who's remixed by our name somebody famous and then when we got theme music about like 20-30 episodes ago Josh was like you gotta stop that and, and I went no <laughs> so yes the theme music is remixed by Simon Frangle that's amazing and again thank you Justin from the movie wire <laughs> My pleasure. Bye.